Hello, welcome to Hope This Helps. We're back after taking the summer off, and things have happened. We've happened. The world has happened. And Hope This Helps is once again happening. We are all excited for whatever episode number this is, episode number 38. And we have a ton of stuff to talk about today. It's going to be an action-packed, information-packed, and just overall-packed episode of all kinds of different things. If you're new to Hope This Helps, thanks for listening. It's awesome to have you here. And if you are an existing listener, also thank you for joining in. As always, it's awesome to have you along. And it's good to be back. And without further ado, let's talk about IT things and fun things. My name is Steve. And I'm Tiffany. And let's boot up. Boot up. I, I don't know. I just never, those noises, the sound effects, I just never get old o- over them. I just recall last episode you were noting that I didn't make the noises. Yeah, so I and I, I missed them. Ahead of that. So I'm, I'm really happy that like you brought them back in a more reoccurring fashion. I did not forget. I do not forgive and I do not forget. That is the sysadmin way. Y- yes, that is a fact. And elephants, supposedly. Do elephants really do anything? Do they have opinions? I bet they have a lot. They have snouts and blowholes, and they use the blowholes to express their opinions. But isn't there like an expression that's like the memory of an elephant, like meaning they don't have very good memory? So I don't actually know. I don't know how you measure how good an elephant's memory legitimately is. That sounds like an interesting case study to be had. <laughs> yeah. No, Um. that's what I'm going to be doing for the rest of the afternoon now, looking at how to study an elephant's memory. Not that I have access to an elephant, but if I did. I think it's illegal to have access to an elephant. Not, I don't have a place part. to put an elephant. Yeah, me either. Anyways, we can also discuss elephants in Outlook Web Access. And lately, Outlook Web Access suggests a bunch of pre-reading. So if we ever wanted to have a meeting about elephants, it would say, hey, maybe you should read this previous email that Tiff sent about elephants. And it will now come up as a notification before a meeting saying, hey, here's a suggested pre-read for your upcoming meeting. I don't know if you've seen that, but I have. I, I have seen it in other places. I want to say either in Outlook or in Teams, I can't remember exactly where, that it will have like, so if that person or if anyone like in the meeting had sent like a document beforehand, it'll also be like, you might want to read this unopened document. Exactly. And I've observed this with several meetings that I've had where someone sent this like Excel spreadsheet of just a whole bunch of stuff to review. And funny enough, Oa actually brings that right up and says, hey, this same person who scheduled this meeting sent this prior to this. And I think this might be relevant. And that was super helpful because normally I'd be scrambling in my email trying to find the thing and it's just a mess and I like not being a mess. Same. I've been using OA a little bit more lately because I wanted to get into this thing where like I didn't feel like installing the fat Outlook everywhere and I just kind of wanted to get more used to it just because, I don't know, it does feel lighter to use sometimes. So in using this, you kind of get to know some of the new features that Microsoft pushes out to OA. And this is one of them. It's kind of cool. That is pretty cool. And that's part of like their whole experience to try to streamline the look and feel of the applications across platform. So that's pretty exciting. Um, I've also been using Insights a lot lately too, which I'm not, I, I don't know, I'm mixed on like AI and stuff, but I'm weirdly selfishly not mixed about it when like it helps me. 
ideally you'd like AI when it does help you and yeah. you don't like it when it's all Terminator 2 on exactly. you. And you can't ever predict when that's going to happen. But my point here is I've been using insights, especially on like in teams, because I leave it at one as my top tab, because whenever I screen share, like I always, for some reason, like either the video screen pops up or like my chat's wide open. And like, I hate being in a situation where like people are reading confidential chats that maybe I'm screen sharing with like a different stakeholder or someone else who is not involved. So sometimes like my team's chat has more information than people need to see because I feel like the new sharing has gotten more complex. (laughs) So I've been using insights. So when I share my screen now, I just like pop over to the insights tab. But what's nice about it is that it'll be like, hey, you didn't read these documents in this email. Um, So for example, they sent out a bunch of policies on like COVID and going to the office and stuff. And of course, like I didn't read the documents uh, because I just assumed I knew what was in them. And the insights kept saying like, hey, uh, so-and-so sent this email and you didn't read the documents. And I was like, actually, that's pretty helpful because if I ever do need to read them, I know where to find it. You got to just hope it doesn't rat you out, though. That's the only thing about it. I know nobody's looking at insights. And (laughs) honestly, like, go for it. I mean, (laughs) at this point, come and get me, brah. Come at me. Come at me. I'm not that worried about it, though. But no, it does offer some other stuff, too, like upcoming meetings. And just, like, it tells me to have a good day. So sometimes... That is hugely important to be just told to have a good day. Yeah. I'm like, thanks, uh, Insight. But really, like, I just wish that there was a way to hide chats better. And maybe I'm the only person who has that problem. Yeah, I could sometimes see the need for that. Like in Teams specifically, I have my own issues with Teams still supposedly not really working all that well with Focus Assistant Windows 10. And if you're screen sharing, that custom non-native Teams notification still pops up over everything and you have to mute specific channels. And of course, if you have your Teams window open, your whole channel sidebar is often exposed by default unless you collapse it. And yeah, it'd be nice to kind of figure out some way. I understand pop-out chat exists, but it'd be nice to, if it could reconfigure itself automatically using some of that insight technology to hide itself from screen sharing. That would be super awesome and helpful. That would be fantastic because there are just some chats that some people should just not see in general. It's like, yeah, I don't know. It's like a side work chat or yeah, or even just a personal like chat with an AVP or something. Some stuff just shouldn't be out in the open. Right, you know? right. There's some inner like personal conversations or like what if you had a conversation with HR, you know, you reported something and now all of a sudden you're in a presentation and it's shown to everybody. Yeah, and that's that's never great. That's like a that could be HIPAA or FERPA yeah. or whatever whatever uh, violation out there. And you're just hoping that no one sees it. Yeah, so that's an improvement point for Teams. Oh man, I feel good. I haven't complained about Teams in a long time. This is great. We're we're back on the train for complaining about Teams on the Complaints About Teams podcast. Yeah. <laughs> Hope this helps. Hope this helps. So let's also continue down the train of complaining about things. So I've been using Azure Cloud Shell a little bit more lately, and I'm running into various things about it that kind of annoy me. And whether or not this was designed for half of these things I'm about to complain about is a whole other discussion. But this is just my own experience. It's kind of like the whole work from home. If I want to open a portal and use the cloud features, it would be cool if this stuff could kind of function a little better. So what am I talking about? Azure Cloud Shell. It kind of sucks. I'm complaining about it. Sorry. 
Supposedly, the MO of Cloud Shell is, Cloud Shell enables access to a browser-based command line experience built with Azure management tasks in mind. Leverage Cloud Shell to work untethered from a local machine in a way only the cloud can provide. And boy, can only the cloud provide this, I guess. There's some things, and these could be part of greater moving parts, actually further developments involving some retiring of certain commandlets and graph APIs. But for example, let's talk about something simple. Connect-MSOL service just doesn't work with Azure Cloud Shell. That module just doesn't function in it. It either is dependent on Windows PowerShell or certain libraries that just didn't come to Azure Cloud Shell. That just doesn't work. So right off the bat, you can't really use it if you want to do some things like set MSOL user, if you want to configure self-service password reset alternate emails directly from Azure Cloud Shell. Sorry, you can't exactly do it from there. You have to open PowerShell on your native system, install the modules for MSOL, and run it from there. So right there, you've kind of you kind of made me raise an eyebrow from the beginning. Um, let's see. So the second thing, second number complaint bullet point, it times out too fast. The default timeout period for Azure Cloud Shell is about 20 minutes. And I don't know about you, but sometimes I just move away from Azure Cloud Shell or I do something else and I might have my setup, I might have connected to Exchange and I come back and it's like, oh, it closed everything out. All my variables are gone. All my everything is gone. I want to just look up someone Exchange Online. Now I got to reconnect to Exchange Online. So that's not great. That would be cool if you could like adjust that more on the fly or if there was an easier access to the policy or a per session setting. Just say, hey, I'm going to be working a lot. Don't time me out. Right. And let's see what else. Um, No on-premise exchange connectivity. So this is kind of a duh thing, but it would be kind of nice if you could, you know, tunnel back to your on-premise exchange environment if you wanted to manage hybrid exchange things like I often need to. But Azure Cloud Shell is just not really built for that. No. like I mean, they just added the O365 portion last year or the year before. So it's still like fairly new. Because before it was just a regular CLI for just Azure. Yeah. You can install other modules into it. But again, it's yeah, it's sort of only restricted to things in the cloud. I don't know if you can actually configure some kind of Azure virtual network or subnet or I don't know how that would interact with Cloud Shell exactly or if Microsoft even allows that. But that's sort of a thing that would be nice to have in Cloud Shell, but just isn't there. And I don't really have a comment other than I can't do it. Right. So here's something else. And I actually filed a, um, a GitHub issue on Microsoft's documentation for this. The documentation on the Exchange connectivity in Azure Cloud Shell is out of date. Mm. They have a special commandlet for Azure Cloud Shell called connect-exop session, which doesn't mean Exchange on-premise. It means Exchange Online PS Session, mm-hmm. which is, you know, acronyms, yay. This commandlet does not utilize the brand new REST-based Exchange Online PowerShell Module V2. It uses the old PS session-based basic authentication method for connecting to Exchange Online. Now, it still works right now today, but basic auth is going away, so this commandlet will theoretically just stop working. So this is something Microsoft has to work out because this is default in Cloud Shell and built in. Ironically, you can install the new EXO PowerShell Module V2, and you can do that from the PS Gallery and do install-module, but that's not the default right now. 
and the documentation doesn't reflect that. So I did file a GitHub issue for that, but I just think that's kind of funny that Microsoft is sort of behind on their own life cycle for basic auth retirement when it comes to Exchange Online and Azure Cloud Shell. Mm. So I wonder too, if it's a limitation because it looks like the Cloud Shell is just running on a containerized instance of Ubuntu. That does make sense, I guess, because it's running, it runs PowerShell 7 or PowerShell Core formerly. And you can choose between Bash and PowerShell when you first launch it, and it stores its stuff in an Azure storage account. So, yeah, it's obviously not running Windows PowerShell, but I just right. still think it's interesting. Well, I mean, until they get like Linux and Mac OS like up to speed and up to date with PowerShell, which I think as they get rid of older versions, it will become more and more. But then they're just going to continue getting rid of commandlets that are near and dear. Yeah. So that's a perfect segue into starting in mid-2022, Microsoft is going to be walling off some things from PowerShell that used to be available in PowerShell, but will soon only be available in Microsoft Graph. And one of the big targets, casualties for this change, is going to be set MSOL user license. Instead of being able to set this directly in PowerShell through MS Online, you're going to have to do it through Microsoft Graph PowerShell through set MG user license. So if you have any scripts that do any Office 365 licensing of users, this is going to impact you if you're just doing it directly like this. And that may mm. be a problem. I hope no one is doing it this way anymore. I mean, I like doing it this way, mostly because the Graph API, as good as it really is, it's I feel it's needlessly complicated. and just trying to do some of the same things that you used to be able to do through just a simple commandlet in the Graph API. It's just adding a bunch of overhead and extra code, and I don't know. I don't like it. I've tried multiple times to learn it, and I feel it's just a worse experience than just standard PowerShell commands. So I know that they had the Azure Active Directory module, which was basically just powered by Graph API. So it was basically like commandlet spat for Graph instead right yeah and those do exist but it's just more like you have to it's another thing to connect to with the graph api you need tokens and stuff you can't just yeah. supply dash credential and do get credential it's a whole other song and dance which is kind of is what it is but a little annoying i mean everything is api based now so it's it's hard i could be totally wrong and maybe i'm just learning it wrong but so far my experience has been eh, it's not not super great I haven't used Graph a whole ton, but also why would you do licensing that way? There's so many other easier ways to do it now. Yeah, one of Microsoft's recommended methods is doing group-based licensing. Yeah, which is so like easy mode. Right, it is easy mode because not only does it sort of solve this problem already by pre-configuring it in Azure and then just linking it to certain attributes in AD, then you also then don't need to connect to any sort of Microsoft online service if you're hybrid. You can just say, on my AD objects, just configure this property on the account, which will then line up to the twin in Azure, and then it will just license itself at the next Azure AD sync. So that's also another way around it. It's kind of nice. It does kind of button everything up. But otherwise, if you're using the other commands, um, you have to start planning some migration strategy, be it group licensing or start learning the Graph API in some way, because Microsoft is changing that soon. Mm-hmm. Well, it's just a further indication that needing to know some level of programming or like scripting language or even CLI is super important because basically everyone's a developer now. And if you don't know it, you're 
going to unfortunately I think kind of get left behind or put into functional roles that simulate roles you probably don't want to be in yeah it's the classic you know I only work out of the GUI I've never done anything out of command line command line is scary command line is hard right and then you're as good as help desk at that point moving forward not to be mean or anything but I mean there are other things you could be doing but if you're not familiar I mean you could go into being a cloud advocate or developer advocate and there are roles but I don't think that it's well known what the transition is out of infrastructure and into DevOps and so forth. I think that whole transition is quite confusing, especially for folks who are still like working a lot with on-prem and then you get a new job and you're like, oh, wait, like now I don't know who I am anymore. <laughs> yeah. And the transition to DevOps can be rough for a lot of yeah. people. I know I've seen people's faces go green when they see like, you know, how you use DevOps and how all of that works, just the very idea of using, you know, GitHub-based version tracking, change control, pull requests, and branching and merging and all of that, that just, sometimes that just completely turns people off. So right. it could be a rough transition for a lot of people who aren't used to that. Exactly. And you could be an infrastructure wizard, like build massive networks. But if you've never used CLI or actually knowing some level of scripting language or familiarizing yourself with Docker or any of those things is going to be helpful. We've talked about infra as code before, but that's uh, going to be more of a thing. You know, um, for example, like not to brag, but this week I <laughs> kind of figured out. <laughs> You're killing me. <laughs> I know, right? This is such a sad brag, but for me, it's, it's okay. Me, it's, no, this is huge though. It's a humble victory for me. I figured out how to do um, kind of a cohesive way of testing and deploying stuff in Azure DevOps without like, you know, completely testing and production and hosing the production environment. I figured out how you can use effective Git branching to basically commit all of your test stuff into that branch, not into the master or main branch, but into its own branch. And that way, it's sort of like a branch on a tree. If you don't like it, you can chop it off. And it's no danger to the main part of the tree, you know? You basically do that in a test environment somewhere. You make sure all of that works. And then you submit a pull request so you can actually bring all those changes that you made inside this branch into the main branch. And then you can pull that on your production server. And I kind of figured that all out this week. And I'm kind of just super glad I did because I know it's, you know, to most people, they're like, oh, yeah, where have you been? This is just normal. But to me, it's like, no, this is uh, a little bit new to me. Just I'm, I'm kind of slow in learning this. But yeah. I'm, I'm figuring it out. Well, for, for people like who only have worked in like these hybrid environments where like infrastructure teams historically haven't really done a lot with GitHub or, you know, development or what would be considered development practices in the past are really kind of left in the dark because one, like the world of software development in general is moving at lightning speed. And if you basically can't keep up, like you have to figure out how to keep up and continue it like CICD pipelines. This whole idea of change management is entirely different now. Being able to make a pull request and make that change right there is something that a lot of these organizations are really going to struggle with is that the request gets approved as someone looks at it for polls like that I think for cough cough ITIL organizations are really going to like not know what to do with themselves when their entire change management board kind of becomes obsolete or they'll have to figure out how to adapt that into right. the main system 
and make that sort of centralized. Right. Like, for example, like, you know, the test environment, creating a branch, doing all my changes, I might have like a thousand commits in there because I might be like, yeah. do that thing that everyone does in GitHub where it's like, you think you got it all, you hit commit, you push, and then you realize a second later, oh, I spelled this wrong. And then you yeah. make another emb- another small embarrassing commit saying, uh, yeah, I spelled the word elephant Oops. wrong in my code. And you commit that and you just have all these commits in this branch. And then when you're done, you then do a pull request when you're all ready to merge it in. And at that point, that's when you probably bring it to the change board and say, hey, I got this pull request and um, this is going to come into the main part of the code, which will be production and making changes to production. And hey, that's why I'm here with my change request. Yeah. Well, that also then pushes for uh, having more agile change boards where they can make those decisions on the fly because a lot of um so i'm definitely a lot in like scrap mind right now and like understanding what it's like to be a product owner and scrum team member and what that means is like the faster you can deliver anything the better the benefit you'll have and part of scrum is deliver it fast make small incremental changes along the way i just think it'll be interesting to see how organizations can adopt this kind of mentality because they're very they're almost opposing but i think they can have some meshing for sure one thing that i find that needs to be very crystal clear is what all the terminology means i've seen a lot of times where someone who is very devops minded might have a change request in and they say okay i have this sprint for this period of time it contains all of these user stories and all these changes and they might have like a huge laundry list of everything. And the change board might sit there and go, okay, let's start back at square zero. What is a user story? What is a sprint? What is all this? Because I will admit, when I first started learning DevOps, all of these terms are really out there. They don't mean exactly what you think they mean. It took me a while. Actually, I I, I bet I probably still don't know the depth. Like you call something an epic and I'm like, yeah. What the heck is an epic in DevOps? Like <laughs> that's one of my beefs with DevOps is all the terms aren't clear and they don't mean, you know, it's sort of like the subculture that is really difficult to get into and that might be part of the barrier to entry to DevOps. It, it's actually not. Um, it's a barrier to entry if you've only lived in one world of processes because um, all of that isn't agile. It's all part of the agile framework. Um, so sprints, right. epics. Um, Scrum. So it's just if you haven't done a lot of development work or you haven't worked in agile teams, you won't know that terminology unless you've gone down that. So I think like for organizations that haven't adopted agile in any particular way or they're trying to, I think getting your people trained on it is super important. Yes. And I think, and I was about to say, I think that's kind of one of the core problems is not enough people, you know, it's not necessarily their fault, but it's like, you know, they're coming from backgrounds where this wasn't a thing. The traditional Windows IT administrator isn't going to be familiar with these terms. I know I certainly wasn't. And that might be part of the problem. Yeah, no, for sure. It, It definitely is. Until I took Scrum training, which is just one piece of agile development, I always kind of like knew that the teams that I had worked in were different, but I could never really tell why or how. And it wasn't until I realized like that parts of the dynamics of certain teams were actually built up from Scrum. But I don't think that anyone knew that because 
we weren't we never called it that we never said hey like you know the enterprise apps team are really product owners so and so owns ad so and so owns messaging they are a product owner they're deciding the roadmap they're giving suggestions they're building out you know they're going and finding research out on the product sometimes product owners are technical sometimes they're not and but being on like these enterprise technical teams they're really just product owners um, who are, you know, vouching for their pro- their product and their product is whatever it, it a product is, you know, a website or and I think that's it's hard if you you're not familiar. There's some weird intricacies with Scrum and Agile, but it's really mathematical as far as, you know, you can you can calculate your work down to the minutes and y- the teams are meant to be extremely flexible, extremely dynamic, uh, self-serving managers are actually as part of like in the scrum training material it basically says like managers step back and you let your team do the work so i think for a lot of organizations that are centrally managed this is a huge change for them this is shocking and like so learning the vocabulary and the language because the whole point of devops is to just make those changes on the fly is to just be able to look over to your team and say, hey, or not even look at that, like look at the problem and fix it immediately and, and just like keep moving forward without any stops. I think like ITIL, one of the issues with that is you need to have 100% buy-in for that to work in an organization. Yeah. That's one of the things ITIL, they stress in training. They say, you can't just do it in one department. You got to have everyone accept and buy in otherwise it's not going to work and right stuff like this could be in the same vein yeah and there is some stuff too that is starting to like integrate the two together because part of the reason why a lot of companies don't do well or they start hemorrhaging lots of money is because of tech debt and but a lot of it is because they spend so much time in this analysis paralysis state and they spend so much time focusing on Exactly that, the process, making sure you have a hundred percent. And one of the things about Scrum is it's like, cool, like it's most of the way, like let's ship it. Let's get it out there. Or else you get stuck kind of in that, well, you need to have a hundred percent buy-in. Or yeah, like there's too much cost to end like too much cost to entry. You gotta have a minimum viable product. Exactly. Right. And I think when you're sitting on these changes or, you know, someone from DevOps goes into um, a change meeting and they're just stating their case and they're saying, like, I have these stories, these user stories, and I have this epic. Because a lot of the, the Scrum Foundation is based on increments. It's basically creating one massive backlog for the product. So if your website would be your product and then you can have other iterations of, of products in one product, but you have your major org backlog. So that's all of the works that includes user stories, bugs, basically anything you can think of that's work. And that kind of gets put into one giant list. You create the sprint. So a product owner will go in and say, hey, like these are the most important things we want to focus on. You know, my scrum team is this big and your backlog is basically churned based on that risk. Yeah. And that's... um. Yeah, that's that's a that's a great description of it. Yeah, can you tell I've been reading here <laughs> so much? Yeah, I've been say, like I, I've been memorizing. The, like I think I've just like actually memorized the Scrum Guide, like because <laughs> I've read it. If it sounds like I have nothing to follow up with, it's because I'm sort of out out of my element with this. But yeah, you yeah clearly, no, you you're you're coming hot out of uh, Scrum training. So. Hot out of it, hot. And we are investing 100 percent in Scrum training. It 
the way to go and we're getting our CEO and our, and all of the VPs trained on it so they can help move things faster. We are 100% cloud. So I think that is this is a more fitting format for us because we don't right. have the on-prem stuff to worry about. Right. We come from two different worlds. Cause yeah. No. I'm working definitely. where we still firmly have, you know, both. We still got to yeah. deal with, you know, the hybrid because we do have cloud, but we also have needs for on-premise. It, it is. I definitely think now if like we needed to have a hardware or put an on-prem environment, I think having the agile and like scrum background would actually make it easier to go to a hybrid because everyone is already like up to date and knows what they need to do. And it would just be like business as usual. Right, precisely. So I think that going from the old school to the newer way of thinking definitely is a challenge for the existing on-prem world where they're doing a hybrid because there's a a lot of old thoughts. A lot of people who have this old thought process that things have to be centralized. And I was definitely in that camp until I started really looking more into DevOps and just like shipping softer, faster, better. And there's just so many articles out there that just prove time and time again that sitting on projects, it's just a waste of time, waste of skills. It's just a waste. All right. That was like my little rant. I'm good now. We can move on. That's all good. No, I was... um. I really wish I could say more about it, but yeah. No, no yeah, totally no, you right. need you need to definitely, I highly recommend that if you have spare time, just going over the Scrum Guide, uh, scrum.org has a lot of really great resources um, that are free at no charge. Just like familiarizing yourself with some of the terminologies, just so that DevOps, if that's the path you want to go, like becomes more comfortable and you're more familiar with that terminology for you. Yeah, for sure. That's awesome. So scrum.com it was, you said? Scrum.org. I don't know where scrum.com will take you. Knock.com. Be careful about (laughs) scrum.com. I don't know where that takes you. I'm not going to try. No, I'm going to try right now, actually. Well, uh, if you disconnect, I'll know why. Yeah. Bye. Oh, it's just ESPN for rugby. That's actually, I'm actually grateful that it's rugby owned. That makes me happy. I'm okay with that. Yeah, and it's not just, it doesn't take you to some virus infested. Nope. Nope. We're good. It's clean. So scrum.org for the IT scrum, scrum.com for ESPN and rugby. Yeah, for actual rugby. Woo. Woo. So let's maybe talk about something I can... You can go to town on, because I can't. Yeah, <laughs> I can go to town on this for a few moments. Windows Admin Center. It annoys me immensely, but it does work, I guess. This is uh, my favorite punching bag. It's not really my favorite punching bag, but it's a punching bag because I've uh, touched upon it twice now. Back in episode 20 and 24 regarding Windows Admin Center. To recap, if you don't know what Windows Admin Center is, if you have a bunch of servers and you want to sort of, kind of centrally manage them, you can install Windows Admin Center on a central server computer that you want to deem as your Windows Admin Center, literally. And you can then add all of your computers as long as you have network visibility to them all. And supposedly you can manage them all here, you can connect all the services. Supposedly, you can replace whole things like RDP or the MMC or whatever it is. You could even do remote PowerShell, all this kinds of stuff from this one web-based interface. And it's a great idea in theory. It's a like Microsoft should be applauded for the very idea of this. 
The only thing about it is it doesn't quite work all that great or as expected a lot of the time. Hasn't it been the same since like 2008? So Windows Admin Center is actually only a couple of years old. It's okay, not, why did defi- I think it was like in older revisions? So you, um, what's the word I'm trying to say? You would be forgiven if you mistook it for something like Server Manager or oh, yep, no, one of the I, million old consoles that yeah, they used that to have. I think was similar maybe that had like similar yes. functionality. Okay. No, I probably am thinking and I probably have clumped them as being the same. And that's okay. So in fact, when you do launch Server Manager in Server 2019 and 2022, you get a little pop-up saying, hey, have you tried Windows Admin Center? And it even kind of misleads you into thinking they're the same when they kind of are and they kind of aren't. They fundamentally work differently from one another. Like, for example, you don't install Windows Admin Center on every single computer. You install it on one computer and you use that to connect to all the servers. It's kind of the opposite of server manager in that regard. So anyway, so from episode 20, a lot of my complaints from back then are still in play today. And it's kind of death by a thousand cuts for Windows Admin Center in terms of things that I wish were better or points of improvement. Luckily, the suite does update fairly regularly. I want to say it updates two times a year. I could be wrong about that. I'm just not looking at the actual documentation for that at the moment. But let's start with something, something that's grinding my gears quite a bit is the remote PowerShell feature. It's really picky and a little bit buggy at times. In order to connect to a server and actually click the tab in the sidebar for PowerShell, you need to specify your credentials in a very certain specific way. And the interface isn't super clear on that. And I only found this out through trial and error effectively. So let let me explain. When you connect to a server, initially you click PowerShell, it'll ask for credentials. Why it asks for credentials again, I don't know, even though the Windows Admin Center frequently asks, specify your credentials for everything. Do you want to use these for all connections? And I go, yeah, sure. But PowerShell does its own thing. It's kind of weird. So you select as a username, let's say steve at mycompany.com. You put your password in for the password field naturally. This will not work. But if you do my company whack steve for the username, it does work. So it's very picky about the username formatting. Even though both are technically supposed to be the same, you can't do user at tenant.com. You got to do tenant whack user. Kind of weird. I don't know if I like it. It does work. I wish the documentation would be more clear on that or if they could fix this quote-unquote bug. And of course, this does not work though when you're trying to connect back to the gateway server with the remote PowerShell feature enabled. For some reason, that just doesn't work, and you got to specify the username in a slightly different way there. So all these little, little things. But Remote PowerShell is a fantastic feature in Windows Admin Center. It's like it can prevent you from needing to RDP into things. It can allow you to do remote commands. You don't have to do invoke command with a script blocked on a computer name switch. It's a cool feature that really, I don't know if a lot of people actually know it exists. But it's a really awesome little thing. Well, now that I am learning that it's a different thing, I what I thought it was is not. But Server Manager, I also think, is a totally very unutilized tool. Yeah, Server Manager kind of annoys me because it's it kind of feels like it's all over the place in it a lot is. of respects. But it works for my ADHD brain, weirdly enough, where I'm just like, oh, this makes sense to me. I don't know if I'm just too old, but I feel <laughs> like... Every version of Server Manager from 2008 onward has always moved stuff around or it's been different. That it has. I know with 2012 and up, it's kind of been the same, but still, I just don't like the way it's organized. Windows Admin Center 
I just kind of like the way they laid things out a little bit more. Isn't it prettier, like, in terms of, like, how it looks? It's been so long since I've logged into a Windows server that I don't actually remember what it looks like. So Windows Admin Center, instead of having its own dedicated window, it runs out of the browser. So you just connect to the master server Mm. with the address bar, and you just connect to it that way. And, yeah, I'd say it's prettier. It's got dark mode, so it automatically gets a thumbs up from me compared to Server Manager, which doesn't. Ah, interesting. It's like how Exchange used to run its server management. (laughs) It actually kind of a little bit looks like the Azure portal in some respects. It kind of lays itself out that way, which is ironic because it actually does connect to Azure in some way if you specify the connectors. Mm. Anyways, we still have a couple more problems with this product. So there's a lot of user voice pages for this product, such as view feedback and proposed features for PowerShell, specifically the PowerShell module in the servers, you know, the thing I just complained about. But Microsoft on their documentation, they are linking to a 404 user voice page for it because user voice went away. So a lot of the documentation for Windows Admin Center, which is seemingly feedback-based, is kind of not in a good place right now. Well, that's frustrating. Super frustrating, because I'd like to suggest all these things that I'm talking about, but I can't because they nuked user voice. And yeah, there seems and to be no replacement right now. I wonder how that's going, because they, they had like, this grand old idea of how it would work. But I just think that there's no real way they're getting feedback. Yeah, and that, that's troubling. I hope Microsoft knows that like walling off feedback just because you're getting a lot of negative feedback, that's not the right thing to do, and you shouldn't. You know, they should have had a replacement ready to go from the word go. Mm-hmm. There's something that bothers me more than when you take away the ability to complain about something and there's no replacement. That sounds really entitled and very like customers always right. But with Microsoft, yeah. they really need that. Yeah. No, I agree. Honestly, the user voice was where I got most of my answers to things. So now I just feel very confused. Yeah. Exactly. And um, speaking of other feedback for Windows Admin Center, so some other complaints I have that kind of prevent me from fully using it, and it's mostly speed and efficiency issues. So for example, you can't connect to more than one server without duplicating the admin web window. So you need to open a new, entirely new browser window or tab and reconnect to the whole thing if you want to have more than one server connection at the same time. Otherwise, you're clicking out of a server and into another one. And it's kind of slow in my experience. I don't know why they haven't made this more efficient, but they haven't. And doubly so for a tabbed interface. If they made these connections based on tabs, I think we wouldn't be having this conversation. It's like an OA where you can view multiple emails and little tabs at the bottom of the screen. Why isn't this in Windows Admin Center, I ask? (laughs) Um, Use these credentials for all connections. It doesn't seem to work or apply to everything. Like I said, in the PowerShell tab, it just doesn't seem to remember that setting. Let's see. Other than that, did I mention it's slow? I mean, I wrote it down twice, so I guess I really want to emphasize it's kind of slow. And trying to tag a shared connection results in all available tags being checked by default. This is kind of a UI bug, but it's really annoying when you want to be really organized in your shared connections for servers. You try to tag something, and it ends up selecting all your tags by default, which means I have to spend like 30 seconds to one minute scrolling through and manually unchecking all these tags. Kind of a strange little bug, and it's been sticking around for a couple versions of Whack now. Uh, lastly, some of the most sysadmin-y things that I want in this admin console are not there. So you can't do advanced things like take ownership of registry keys or values. You still need the actual old regedit console to do that, and you can't get to that through Whack. you got to RDP in or use the regedit.exe and use connect to another computer to get to that stuff. 
I wish it would be more fully featured in Windows Admin Center to include all this stuff, but it seems we're not quite there yet. Anyways, yeah, that's my little mini rant on WAC. I forgot something. I, so I'm really excited about WAC, but it made me think about Azure or not Azure, Active Directory and in general and the discussion we were just having about infrastructure as code. So in DevOps, I don't know why this totally slipped my brain, but I totally just remember it. So HashiCorp, they are the developers of Terraform, which is a huge uh, DevOps tool for managing IAC, so infrastructure as code. Oh, nice. Earlier this week, they actually announced that they're going to support Azure Active Directory in Terraform. So it enables you to manage your Azure Active Directory resources inside of Terraform. So it's one step closer to having like identities also managed in IAC and removing the need for those commandlets because it's going to, it's developed using Microsoft Graph. So I totally random aside that um, sort of is related to the discussion we were having. Yeah, no, it's related. It's close enough. Yeah, that's cool. That so there was always some APIs to it, but now it's going to be better and more robust to support applying Azure Active Directory resources and stuff and manage identities better. So that's exciting. Yay. Okay, that's sorry. Awesome. You can go on about WAC again. It was entertaining. Oh, yeah. No, no worries. Um, That was all I had to say about WAC, actually. So you came in right at the perfect time. I could talk about Defender for Endpoint and in the same vein of WAC, uh, how kind of weirdly annoying the web console is. Oh, go for it. Yeah, so unlike WAC, uh, Defender for Endpoint, or aka the Microsoft 365 Security Center, or whatever they feel like calling it today, it's the home hub for your, if you have the A5 or E5 license, and you have Microsoft Defender for Endpoint, formerly known as Microsoft Advanced Threat Protection, ATP, which more or less just feeds off of Windows Defender or System Center endpoint protection, depending on how old your OSs are. This is sort of your central hub for EDR and vulnerability management and scanning, and but not exactly antivirus scanning. It's kind of, that's still sort of shunted off to Windows Defender and SCEP. So you have to kind of understand where it stops and the actual local antivirus starts. But you still can do a bunch of fun stuff in it. It is nice for insight and logging and security vulnerability awareness specifically, like CVEs are all loaded in there. You can search by them and it's a really nice tool. But when it comes down to managing devices, it could be a little bit better in terms of device inventory, search dashboards and reports. For example, I wish it would support wildcard searches. Like currently you can't. If you have a bunch of machines that are named similarly, it's a little bit hard to pull them all up. You kind of have to finagle with it or manually click around. and. Exact matches are also sort of picky in the search as well. I've had a couple issues where it will not exactly take me where I think it's going to take me if I enter the exact name of a server. It's kind of odd that way. Let's see what else. You can have duplicate and misleading entries. Um, if you join a system and it somehow is able to see Defender for Endpoint or Defender for Endpoint can see it, particularly when you're building out a new VM in Azure, it might be kind of confusing because it will add the workgroup version of the server to the device inventory versus the domain joined server. And when it's domain joined, both of them still stick around and report the same timestamps, but you really only necessarily care about the domain joined one at that point and the workgroup one sticks around. So you kind of have to add a tag saying, this is a workgroup version of the computer object, disregard it. Or if it's showing up as inactive, you're like, hey, this server's not inactive, what's going on? 
You're like, well, this is why. And what else? Removing a device other than waiting for it to age out would be a nice little feature suggestion of mine. Currently, you can't remove a device from the Defender for Endpoint device inventory unless it actually ages out or goes inactive. And like SCCM, I have multiple problems with this because if a device isn't reporting in properly and then it gets deleted and I'm not aware of it, that's a problem because then I'm like, I could be blissfully unaware that the Microsoft monitoring agent stopped reporting in and maybe 30 days lapse and then it's suddenly gone. And that's not great because then I don't know if it'll ever report in again. Wait, what? You you can't? I'm baffled now. It's sort of like what an old default SCCM policy was, and then it got like promoted to this system. Basically, a device that goes stale gets removed after X amount of days. The problem is I haven't found any current method of detecting when that happens, and say a device drops off and removes itself fully out of the console, I might go unaware for the longest time that some server dropped off and went inactive, but since it removed itself automatically from the Defender Security Center, I can't quite figure that out easily without having to do like a differential report or something. So that's kind of kind of a bummer. And oh, wow. just like WAC, the entire interface is a little bit inefficient, I find. It's kind of like almost similar complaints between the two, but yeah, that's my little speech about Defender for Endpoint and yeah. the current web UI. That just sounds really frustrating, like more than it should. Yeah, super frustrating. Okay, yeah. No, I feel like I'm just complaining this whole podcast. I don't... I don't... No, this is just what we, we do. This is what we do. Sorry, not sorry. This is just things we deal with and things we notice. I'm not upset about it, so... It, it just feels good, though, to get it all out, though, doesn't it? It feels super good. <laughs> it just, you know, it's it's strange. But you're allowed to have grievances, it's like you have to have, to have a big uh, mind map or something. Right. Speaking of mind maps, mm-hmm. there was an event I thought was interesting called CISO Mind Map 2021. Subtitle of that is, what do InfoSec professionals really do? And the reason I decided to highlight this for this podcast is because the graphic in this article is just fascinating because it's sort of like it maps out what an InfoSec professional really kind of does. Isn't it everything? Yeah. And then it kind of got me to thinking, I was like, that brings you to the existential question of, well, look at all this stuff. It's kind of everything. Are InfoSec people actually sysadmins? What is a sysadmin? It's funny that you say that because I think that's why a lot of times what I do gets confused with stuff because it's like, oh, well, you're a security person. And it's like, no, I don't have any credentials at all to be a security person. I just have to implement security stuff. Yeah. And I just th- think it's funny that a lot of times it's like, you never know, you might actually be qualified to be an InfoSec mm-hmm. person or maybe an analyst or something. There's a lot of breadth. Um, yeah, I think breadth is the good word for this of topics that you need to kind of know about. And I think if you come from a sysadmin background, it actually helps a lot more that you know on the depth level of some of these topics. It's obviously not going to be everything, but it certainly doesn't hurt. Right. So what's funny is that on that topic in here, I just posted a link into the show notes. It's a whole website that someone created called How to Get a Job in Cybersecurity. And this person like went through and literally documented like in- input charts and it's, enti- it's an entire website about cybersecurity and getting into it. It has like introductions, it has paths into cybersecurity, goal setting, um, how to learn networking, hand- or no, not how to learn networking, actually networking with people, but hands-on, so like which labs to use, 
certifications or degrees. It's um, resume writing, cover letters. It's a full on like how to get a job. It's quite detailed and pretty excellent. That's awesome. I think one of the most important things also, if you're new to cybersecurity, also realize every day is not going to be like an episode of Mr. Robot. It's going to be, you know, legitimate kind of writing reports, doing research. It's not going to be like, you know, I'm going to fire up Kali Linux every any day and try to hack the Pentagon. Like, no, it's not. It's not what's going to happen. Like, get that out of your head. It's not like that most days. And there are so many various aspects to cybersecurity. And even in this website, at one point, they call out, hey, you know, honestly, if you just get the certifications, just go into cloud engineering or, you know, to be a cloud administrator because you'll get paid more money and you'll get to do pretty much the same job. Right. You'll just have more responsibility and yeah, you might be able to do more stuff. That is not to downplay, you know, standard InfoSec though. There is a place for all of those positions. They're super helpful for analysis and alerting and best practices, all that stuff. Right. And on smaller teams, um, so some companies like who, you know, one don't have the budget or two you don't have the need for like these robust cybersecurity teams, like a cloud engineer or someone else could play a multifunctional role of sort of being that double checker and the cybersecurity team be the maybe less technical, but more on the policy and on the writing side. And then just having, you know, a technical engineer to sort of consult and double check. I think that's a really good format too. If if you don't really have enough budget or work to do for an entire cybersecurity team. Right. And as someone once told me, I don't know who they said, cybersecurity and information security is everyone's responsibility. It's not just one team's. Yes. Everyone is responsible. So yeah, um, if anyone is interested in this, both the cybersecurity introduction and the mind map, check out the show notes and we'll include both of those because both are really cool insights into what the InfoSec world looks like and it's important because, you know, it kind of affects all of us, whether or not you are actually interested in that field in uh, information security specifically. It revolves around all of us. It's like the force, kind of. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. No, there, there's just so much to do in cybersecurity. And I, I didn't really know what red labs and blue labs were. I still don't really. But now, like, I've been sort of going down this rabbit hole of watching videos on, like, ethical hacking just because it's something to do. And I have to say, like, I'm very intrigued because it's just a fascinating area of cybersecurity. Yeah, it is. Yeah, the whole concept of red and blue team stuff, that's also kind of new to me that I also just kind of learned independently on my own recently, too. Yeah, it is interesting. It's a very different world. And, you know, like DevOps, if you don't kind of know the terms and terminology, you're kind of lost at first. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. No, it's, it's a lot to learn. And... It's fascinating. I don't know. The old stuff is just not as fun anymore. I don't know. It, it's it's just not doesn't have like the same excite excitement. Yeah, it's all about the next best thing, the cool new shiny thing. Well, yeah, duh. Of course. Anyway, speaking of new and shiny, I thought I talked about this earlier, but apparently I don't read the show notes enough. Mm-mm. So yeah, in the vein of new and shiny things and fun things. So yeah, the OA experience. This is kind of an interesting way to close out the show, but hey, we'll finish where we started, I guess. So yeah, with OA, it's been kind of fun where I've been trying to use it more and, you know, like whack, like Defender for Endpoint. There's been some features in it that are kind of missing and there's some features in it that are really good. Unlike whack and Defender for Endpoint, I don't really know where to put it on my complaint-o-meter. <laughs> so 
copyright 2021 steve complain meter i like it in oa there's a couple things such as missing ui elements that exist in regular outlook but don't exist in oa for example we have flagged items in a sidebar if you flag something in oa it's kind of hard to find it again especially if you put it in a folder or something it's kind of hard to retrieve it compared to outlook which has a right side sidebar for to-do items and in oa there is a to-do panel but it doesn't include flagged items it instead includes microsoft to-do which is a different thing oh and then on the mac it's totally different too because it's still just tasks drives me insane like microsoft has three different ways to mark things as to-do but they are different depending on where you're looking at them. Depending on Windows, depending on Mac, depending on OA. Yeah, it's kind of weird. I thought I read something that they are planning on fixing that, but now I don't seem to see that. That drives me crazy. The calendar flyout is not expanded by default in OA. That's another thing I always kind of like to have open all the time is like, what am I doing next in my daily meetings schedule? Outlook, you can have that available at all times, but in OA, you cannot, it seems. Yes. So on that too, that's really frustrating to me because I was um, thinking of ways of how I could like integrate. So one cool thing too is in OneNote, you can actually import your to-do items, but only on like from the to-do items. So there's actually like the ability to import the list into OneNote. And of course it's missing on the Mac side and I'm not sure about OA, but I thought that was like, cause I was just looking at different ways to like integrate across like all of the Microsoft apps and it's a nightmare. And so now I kind of want to test it on OA to see what happened, but I think it needs Outlook for the, it needs, yeah, because it has to do with the mappy and like all that fun stuff, so. Yeah, oh geez. Let's see, so what else? Um, categories. I kind of already discussed this at length on our Hope This Helps blog regarding how messed up categories are between Outlook and OA, because that's quite a story in of itself. It's kind of a weird, strange tale of like Mm. legacy tech versus the new tech and what didn't come over, but what still is kind of there. Kind of crazy, but yeah, categories are inconsistent to say the least between the two versions of OA. Here's something that can be classified as an old man complaint. Forward as attachment is different between Outlook in OA versus Outlook on the desktop. Unless they've updated it recently, you have to kind of do this hokey workaround to do it in OA. I left a a link in the show notes from its.gmu.edu, which highlights the process of how to forward as attachment in Outlook on the web. And it involves composing a new email, opening a separate window, and then you need to organize your browser windows so that you can view both your mail folder listing and the blank message window. And then you drag the email that you want to attach and you drop it onto the new message you're composing. In regular Outlook, this is just a button for this attachment. In OA, it's this whole process, which is interesting to say the least. Yeah, no, that definitely is interesting. And let's see. So meeting notifications aren't prominent or obnoxious enough. You know, in Outlook... On the desktop, you get a pop-up and you can snooze and you get all these snooze options. In Outlook on the web, not so much. You get a few snooze options and it doesn't really pop up in front of everything. And you can allow native desktop notifications for it, but it's kind of, eh, it's kind of is what it is. It's not super great, but it's there. There's no unread group by folder view in OA which is super nice if you get like 3,000 emails a day as a sysadmin and you want to just see everything grouped by folder, but view all your unreads. You can't really easily do that in Noah. Instead, you got to surf your way down the sidebar, all this kind of stuff. 
Um, when you're making an email in OA, table management is a little bit buggy. It's really kind of difficult to place the cursor before a table in an email and manage rows and sort of like how it's inconsistent across like OneNote and Microsoft Word. It's just kind of another weird little annoying like paper cut of a complaint, but it kind of matters when you're trying to send emails with big reports and tables. And instead, I end up firing up normal OA just to get half of this to work. Sorry, mm. normal Outlook just to get this to work. Right. Norm- normal OA, the desktop Yeah, version. normal OA. Yeah, listen to me, not even getting the names right. And then lastly, you can't set specific to-do dates for flagged items in OA. That's a nice little feature of Outlook where you can set reminders and specific due dates for flagged items, which seemingly doesn't exist in OA unless I'm mistaken, but I haven't seen it around. That's kind of an interesting omission. Yeah, that is very weird for sure. Anyways, so yeah, that's the that's the part two of my OA experience list of demands, I guess. Yeah, list of demands. I like Jesus, it. Jesus, yeah. You're, you're getting needy now. This is just the Steve yeah. complains about stuff podcast now. Right. No, yeah, you're getting you're getting cranky. Well, at least we did talk about things like Scrum and DevOps and stuff that actually matters. You got some really nice quality discussions in here, too. Yeah. <laughs> Way better you than did, stuff too. Yours are so week. good. No, yours are, yours are excellent. Fantastic. Stop. I will probably have more complaints at some point. I always do. We trade off now and then. We do. We do. It's a pretty even balance. Yeah. So yeah, I think that's everything that's everything I had listed for this week. I don't know if you got any other odds and ends or that is no. accurate or any shout outs or anything else we want to talk about this week. Not this week. I think just getting back into it is going to be really good for both of us because it sounds like we, I mean, we've just been talking now for an hour, over an hour about stuff. So it definitely sounds like we have things to say and and hopefully we can get into a more consistent cadence. I know we keep saying that, but I would really like to because this really does prove to be a good place to get all of that energy out from the work week. So yeah, absolutely. So unless you got anything else, I think we're good. Yeah, no, I am excellent. We are all excellent. All right. So hope this helps. We are a podcast. We are consistently inconsistent in when we record, but we do record and we have a website, hthpc.com. We have a Twitter We've recorded a bunch of other episodes, hopefully try to make them as timeless as possible. So even though we record inconsistently, they are still rewatchable or re-listenable, whatever they are, and they don't try not to age too often, but we'll see how much that works in practice. Got anything fun going on, Tiff, before we go? No, nothing too much right now. Just it's starting to feel like fall. That's for sure. It feels like fall, especially today. It does. Yeah. No, it's definitely starting to feel like fall. It's um, sad, but I'll be fine. Yeah, it's sad, but hey, sometimes there's some good days of fall too. I'm not a fall person, but I like some of the days occasionally. Fall is is a great season. I almost had a holiday in the sport and I was like, well then. Fall is a great holiday in a sport. Yeah, I mean, isn't it the start of football? Isn't that isn't it kind of a sport? Technically, yeah. Yeah, football is about yeah. to get off in full swing here. Pretty soon that's all anyone will care about, so Yeah, definitely. Yeah. Alrighty. Anyway, so until next time, we hope this helps. This helps.